you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn this morning uh, to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and as we have been continuing through our study in the book of Matthew, over the last five or six weeks, we have now been uh, studying Matthew chapter 24. And the language that is used there and the predictions and the fulfillments and the apocalyptic or unapocalyptic type languages that have been used here by Jesus in Matthew 24. <clears throat> and as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 24 verses 29 through 35. Matthew 24 verses 29 through 35. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. You can be seated this morning. Now, as we've studied through Matthew 24, we have talked about the varying interpretations uh, of this chapter, depending upon the, uh, the position of eschatology that you hold. And we've talked about those who would say that, uh, that these are future events, those who would say that some of them are future events, uh, and then those who would say that these are fulfilled events that were fulfilled there in the destruction of the temple and the events surrounding that in A.D. 70, which is the perspective that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. Now, what's interesting is that amongst those who hold to a more futuristic interpretation of this passage, inside of that crowd there is a, a vast amount of disagreement as to where the natural breaks are uh, in this passage. Some would say that all of these uh, are, are yet future events that will come to place, uh, but there are some in those circles who say that some of them relate to the events of AD 70, and then some of them are to be in the future. One of those dividing points uh, is verse 22 for a lot of people. Uh, they believe that that's where the break-in, where Jesus begins to move from what was referred to as the temple of AD 70 to what he's talking about in events that would happen sometime in the future. Now, others hold that the verses that we are here at today, here in verse 29, are that moment of separation where Jesus moves from describing the destruction of the temple at A.D. 70 to talking about future events. But yet others believe that it's verse 36, uh, which we will look at next week in more detail. They believe that is the moment where Jesus switches his, uh, his, his viewpoint from talking about events in the temple of A.D. 70 to future events that are yet to come. So this morning, as we're looking at this, we're going to look at this again from the perspective of seeing that up until this point, even carried through until we get to next week, um, that all of these events that Jesus describes here were perfectly fulfilled there in that generation with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, specifically for this passage in particular, it's important um, that we take some time, and I, I'm going to do my very best to, to get a lot of information here without uh, being too, uh, uh, too out in the weeds, but there's a lot to cover here in this passage. And one of the things that we have to understand is that there's a need for familiarity with Old Testament imagery and language. Now, for some of us in the room, you, you may not be too keenly familiar with a lot of the Old Testament language and, and symbolism that is used in the Old Testament. Um, even if you've read through it, sometimes it's easy to kind of read past it and not really grasp what's being said. But what we have to understand is that for Jesus' audience, for the disciples and the other ones who were gathered around, that Old Testament imagery and language would have made much more sense to them in the first century than it made to, to a 21st century audience. And it's only because they were more keenly familiar with it. 
They didn't have the New Testament in their hands to read and to understand. All they had was the Old Testament. So when they went to the temple, when they went to the synagogues, and they were taught, they were being taught the Old Testament. So they were, they were very aware of this type of language that is being used. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the beginning, because especially in the opening verses, in verses 29 through 31, there's some, some fairly significant language that, that seems to point to some great significant events that obviously we would say, if, if these are literal events, did not take place there in AD 70. But let's look at this a little more closely. I want you to first notice the coming of the Son of Man. And let's look again there at verses 29 through 31. And I want to, to reread those so that now that you understand what we're looking for, you'll take note of that language. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, before we move any further, it's important to notice the word that Jesus uses there. He says, immediately. Now, if someone holds to a, a futuristic interpretation of this text, what they have to, to, to say is that when Jesus uses the word immediately, he does not mean immediately. Uh, if we, you and I use the word immediately following, we, we understand that to mean that something's going to happen, and then right away something else is going to happen. We would not say that immediately something's going to take place and mean that a, a long period of time is going to be interjected in between those two events. But that's what has to happen uh, for it to hold a futuristic interpretation of that, because Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the days being uh, everything that he had been proceeding to tell the disciples leading up to these verses, uh, the, the time of tribulation with the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the persecution of the Christians, and, and then those final cataclysmic events, he says immediately after those things, he says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's, that's some pretty powerful language there. And then he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one from one end of the sky to the other. Now, uh, Albert Barnes and his commentator points out, he says, these images here are not to be taken literally. They're often employed by sacred writers to denote any great calamity. And this is what we're going to find this morning. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages that use language that's almost identical to the language that Jesus is using here. And what the Old Testament writers are attempting to do is to describe tumultuous, cataclysmic, great, terrible events that would have happened in the Old Testament. And they're using this type of very great symbolic language to talk about how destructive and how terrible these events were. When now, with that understanding, you know, it would be hard to think of any other event that would be more world-ending, more destructive, more terrible-minded to a Jewish person than the fall of the great city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. There would have been nothing else that they could have fathomed in their mind that would have been as horrible as these moments. So then when we look at the Old Testament and we see God using this language to describe these type of events, we understand that it would be very natural for Jesus to use this same type of language to discuss an event that would have been the worst thing that a Jewish mind or a Jewish person could have considered happening in the time of their life. We go back to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. He said, the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel chapter 32 verse 7, he says, and when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their skies. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. Joel chapter 2, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Then Isaiah chapter 34, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. Isaiah chapter 13, therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And then in Amos chapter 8, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Haggai chapter 2, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, each one of these passages is referring to judgment coming upon different places. The passage in Isaiah is just talking about the, the judgment that is falling upon uh, Babylon. And then in Ezekiel chapter 32, it's the judgment upon Egypt. Isaiah 34 is the judgment upon Edom. And in Amos, the judgment upon Israel. 
And in Joel, the judgment upon Judah. There in Haggai, it's the judgment upon generalized nations. So what we see here is that Jesus is using this Old Testament language that talks about the fall of a nation, the the judgment and, and and the punishment of God upon a nation. He's using this same type of language here to talk about the judgment and the punishment that was going to come upon the nation of Israel, upon Jerusalem, and upon the temple here in A.D. 70. It was, again, it was the greatest thing that the nations could ever think, would, I mean, that the Jewish people could ever think would happen to their temple. So it makes perfect sense that in the Old Testament, if God used such apocalyptic-type language to describe other destructive events, that Jesus here would use this similar-type language. And in fact, Puritan John Owen said this, he says, "...not to hold you too long upon what is plain and evident. You may take it for a rule that in the denunciations of the judgments of God that through all the prophets, heaven, sun, moon, stars, and the like, appearing beauties and the glories of the heavens are taken for governments, governors, and dominions in political states. So what we see here is when Jesus talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers in heaven, he's talking about these nations. He's talking about rulers. He's talking about political states and things. And he's saying that all of these things, because they, they recognize this, the Jewish people would have in those, that language of sun, moon, and stars, talking about the great leaders and the, and the politics and the nations. And so when Jesus says that all these things are going to come to an end, that the sun will be darkened, it's the sun, that power being destroyed or taken away, the moon not giving its light, judgment falling the stars falling from the sky. Jesus wasn't talking about a literal star falling from the sky because he's talking about the political collapse of the nation of Israel. He's talking about the collapse of the Old Testament system. He's talking about the collapse of the Jewish system of worship. And in fact, one commentator pointed out that that if you were talking about an actual physical event, how this really could not be possible for anything to continue afterwards because we know scientifically that just one star falling from the sky to the earth would cause such a cataclysmic event that the earth would cease to exist in general. There would be nothing left for anything to happen after that fact. So Jesus here is talking about this fall of Jerusalem, this fall of this great nation, this once great nation, this once great spiritual power. He said when all of these things happen, He said, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky, the moon will not give its light, speaking of the tearing down of the great power of this nation. Now notice in verse 30, he says, now not only is this coming here, he's now he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So the question is often asked, what is the sign of the Son of Man? Now if you study church history, You'll see that a lot of people have tried to figure out what exactly is Jesus referring to here because they take it literally. He's talking about some type of sign that will appear in the heavens. Now, a lot of early writers uh, began to try to figure what this might be, and some predicted that that at some time in the future there would be a a large cross that would appear in the sky uh, over Jerusalem. Uh, that there would be this light that would appear in the heavens. Some suppose that it might even be the star that had appeared when Jesus was born would reappear in the sky over Jerusalem. However, when we look at this from the understanding of symbolic language, and we look at this from the language of the Old Testament, we understand that we don't have to look for, or there's no need to look for a literal interpretation of what Jesus is speaking of here. Because again, he's using this figurative type language. Now this passage is in a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And in that passage, Daniel says this, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, it's very obvious, right? But here, the prophet Daniel is speaking of the one who was to come. He's speaking of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom and the power and the glory that God would give to him. And, and, and the dominion that God would give to him in the establishment of his kingdom. Now, what causes the difficulty is, in some translations, the way that this verse is transcribed. Because even notice, if you, if you have the New American Standard in front of you, which is what I'm preaching from this morning, it says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. But it's actually not the best translation of that verse. If you look at a word-for-word translation of the Greek, it actually says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. 
And the reason I think that that's a better translation of that verse is because notice here it says it's not the appearance of the Son of Man in heaven, but it's the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man. He's not saying that he would literally appear, but that a sign would appear, and not that it would appear in the heavens itself. But think of it this way, that it's appearing the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. It's speaking of the place where Jesus is ruling and reigning from. It's a sign of of Jesus as the Son of Man in heaven. So it's not talking about the location of where the sign would be, but the sign was that Jesus was ruling and reigning in heaven. The sign that Jesus was calling his disciples to look for was not something to look up and see, but the sign was the destruction of the temple. The sign was the fall of Jerusalem. It was the end of the Jewish faith and practice because what this event Uh, what this event showed was that Jesus was seated in heaven at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning and exerting dominion over the earth. When the temple fell, when this system was done away with, when Jerusalem was captured and destroyed, this was the sign that Jesus pointed to. He says, this you will know for sure that the Son of Man is in heaven ruling and reigning. This is the sign that you are to look for. One commentator said, as the old dispensation passed away, the sign would introduce the new dispensation. The temple made with hands would vanish for the temple made without hands. So now Jesus is saying, the sign that you're going to look for, that I am who I said I was, that I'm fulfilling my promise. Remember what Jesus said? All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So Jesus was, was ascended back into heaven, was seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then when the temple fell, this was a unmistakable testimony, an unmistakable observation to anyone who saw it, that Jesus was in heaven ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Now Jesus says, though, that in this period of time, in verse 30 again, he says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. Jesus says that when this happens, that this sign would result in the time of mourning. Now, all com- the, the commentators agree that Jesus here is referring uh, back to Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 14, and I'm going to read just one passage out of that. And he says, The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by this se- themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and the wives by themselves. And he continues on and on. So he's, he's talking about all the, the tribes of Israel. So it's this reference to not all the tribes of, of the earth. It's a, a better translation would be all the families of the land because he's speaking here about the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says that in this moment when this judgment falls and, and God has, has seated Jesus in power and this sign is obvious, he said, there will become a mourning on the land of Israel. And so this time of mourning would be as the Jewish people saw all of these events unfold, they would begin to lament the judgment that was falling upon them. They would begin to lament what was happening. There would be a time of of great weeping and sorrow. Why? Because everything that they hoped for was gone. Everything that they trusted in, everything that they longed for was now completely desecrated and destroyed. Now, we know, we can, we can somewhat understand a, a small portion of this, but we can't understand this as much as for the Jewish person because here at our church, we experienced a fire several, uh, a little over a decade ago. Now, most of us in here weren't here at that time, but we can understand what that would be like, right? If you have a place that you go to worship at on Sunday morning where you gather together with the brothers and sisters of Christ and that place was to be destroyed, you would understand how sad you would be because of the memories and the things that you have connected there, because of that, uh, the special place that it holds in your heart. But it was even more for the Jewish people, right? Because this was the place they went to actually meet with the physical presence of God. His presence was there in the temple. And this was not just a place that had just been built in the last hundred years. This was a place that had been established there for hundreds of years. And even before it, a place that God himself had established in the wilderness when they had the tabernacle and they would travel around. So this was everything to the Jewish person. And so for to see the city destroyed and to see the temple burned to the ground, they began to enter into a time of mourning. Now what's interesting is this type of mourning would be somewhat selfish because just of, uh, of the temple being taken away. But the passage in Zechariah that, that everyone believes that Jesus is referring to here seeks to the idea of a repentance that would also lead, excuse me, of a mourning that would also lead to repentance. So 
And we would see that even after the, the destruction of the temple and even after Jesus' crucifixion, we see some of that begin to take place. It's that people begin to recognize, even though they had denied Christ, even though they had rejected Him, in some of these moments they began to see the truth of who Christ was. So in this moment, Jesus is saying that in this fall of Jerusalem, there would be some of the Jews who would repent. There would be some who would, who would trust in Him. There would be some who would come to realize that what they had done was wrong. And we see that happen. Remember when Jesus was crucified? He says, when the centurion saw what would happen, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And the crowds who came together when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. And then in Acts chapter 2, when Paul, excuse me, when Peter began to preach, it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, brethren, what must we do? And he said, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying there's coming a time when his sign, the destruction upon Jerusalem, would appear. And when that happened, they would know that He was ruling and reigning in heaven. And they would bring upon a mourning, a time of sorrow in the nation of Israel. But that out of that, some of those would come to faith. Some of those would come to put their faith and trust in Christ. Now Jesus goes on. He says, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And this is again talking about the presence of Jesus in the destruction of Jerusalem. All throughout the Old Testament, God uses clouds to describe His presence, to describe His arrival uh, to a situation. Uh, Isaiah chapter 19, the oracle concerning Egypt, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Now we know and understand that the Lord did not physically appear in Egypt. But he's describing here his arrival and his presence, not in a, in a physical sense, but in a literal sense. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, not here in AD 70 in a physical way, but he was still coming in his presence in destruction and judgment. And we've referred to those passages before where Jesus talks about this idea of his presence in a spiritual sense, where he's literally spiritually present, but not physically present. One of those being Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is talking about the matters of, of, of sins once against a brother, and he's talking about the matters of church discipline. And he says to them, you know, where three or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Now, Jesus is not talking about being physically with them, but he is talking about being spiritually with them. His presence is, is spiritually there. He is there with them in that moment. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 would say, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Everywhere we go, Jesus' presence is with us. So now Jesus is talking about His presence coming upon the destruction of Jerusalem. This was also related uh, by Jesus earlier in Matthew, because He says that there's going to come a time when He was going to have His kingdom come in power. Matthew chapter 16, He says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So Jesus had promised them. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That coming word, that, that presence word, that word where He was going to come and arrive on the scene. Jesus here is establishing dominantly His presence, His ruling and His reigning in the destruction of the temple and perfectly fulfilling not only this passage here in Matthew 24, but what He said here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28. He says that some of you, will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You know, it's interesting, in the book of John, Jesus specifically is recorded as, as speaking to John and saying that John would not pass away until he saw these things take place. And in and, and my studies this week, I came across something that I had never heard before, but that there was a group of people for, who for a period of time believed that because these events were future events and because Jesus had spoken these words to John, that they believed that John had never died that he had left and that he had gone off and, and was still living some thousand, two thousand years later, just hiding somewhere, waiting for these events to take place so that Jesus' words could be perfectly fulfilled. Now, what makes more sense? Does it make more sense that John is hiding somewhere in the wilderness now some two thousand years old? Or does it make more sense to understand that Jesus here is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 so that his words were perfectly fulfilled? He's conveying... He says, some of you will live long enough to see me coming in his kingdom. And Jesus said the same thing. Remember to the high priest in his trial? 
He says, I adjure you by the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, I will be coming in my kingdom. I will establish my throne. I will establish my position of authority and ruling and reigning over the events of the earth, ruling and reigning over the church, ruling and reigning over what is happening inside the world. There's passages all throughout the scriptures who refer to this time and to this event. Now notice verse 31. Now verse 31, I was so excited as I studied through this this week. Look at verse 31 with us. He said, he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, Jesus says here, uh, I want you to skip uh, to the middle part of the verse, and let's first talk about this great trumpet. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, we see uh, a trumpet blast associated with with the resurrection of the dead. Now, but in this passage, I want us to look at another picture of the, of the trumpet that is used in Scripture, uh, one that, that I believe from my study and my time in this passage aligns more perfectly with what Jesus is talking about here, and that's the trumpet that was used in the year of Jubilee. And that trumpet was a, a blast on the trumpet of deliverance. Now, if you're not familiar with the year of Jubilee, it was something that God had instituted, and it, was, it occurred every 50 years. So it occurred seven times, seven years after its inauguration. So its inauguration would happen, and then seven times seven would be 49, and then on that 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And what Jubilee was, was it was something that God had put into place where anyone who had been sold into bondage, or anyone who had sold themselves into bondage, or anyone who had sold items that were were ancestral possessions, that in the year of Jubilee, you were set free. In the year of Jubilee, you got all of those things back. So it was this wonderful thing that God had instituted. It was liberty to all of those who were living in in bondage. It was a a freedom. It was a year of celebration. And so it was one thing that that the Israelites rejoiced in, this promise that God had given them. But it's also related to us, the idea of Jubilee and the deliverance in Jubilee is related to us in Isaiah chapter 61. Now, as we read this passage, I want to remind you that this is the same passage that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 when he talks about his ministry. So now understanding that this passage is talking about this idea of jubilee, this idea of deliverance, of setting free from bondage, of setting free uh, those who had been in captivity, listen to the words of the prophet and then listen to the words of Jesus. Prophet Isaiah writes, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This passage is in the spirit of of the year of Jubilee. And so the year of Jubilee, it was very symbolic of the gospel age. So when when God had instituted this in the Old Testament, it was very symbolic of the age to come when the proclamation of the gospel would set people free, not from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. When they would find freedom and deliverance, not uh, from being a slave to someone, but from being a slave to sin. And you remember, Jesus quotes this passage. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The scripture tells us that he closed the book and he gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is the idea of this trumpet blast. He says that a great trumpet will go out. So it's this idea of the trumpet, of the idea of jubilee, this deliverance. It's not a trumpet of judgment here. It's a trumpet of deliverance. It's a trumpet of freedom. It's a trumpet of the proclamation of what God is doing through the gospel. Now, let's go back to the beginning of that verse. And he says he will send forth his angels. Now, there, there's a disagreement here about whether the word angel here refers to an actual physical angel uh, that we would understand from the Scripture, 
uh, or whether it, of, whether it uh, refers to the way that this word is always, oftentimes used uh, throughout the New Testament, where it's translated as the word messenger. So the word here is agalos, and it's, sometimes it's translated messenger. And, and as R.T. France puts it, when it's used as messenger, it refers to the human preaching of the gospel throughout the world. We see it in Matthew chapter 10. This is the one whom I've written. Behold, I will send my messenger. It's the same word, uh, agalos. It's the, the same word that Jesus uses here, except here it's translated. He said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Then in Luke chapter 9, he sent messengers. Again, that same word, on ahead of them, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. It's also used to describe, in James chapter 2, Rahab, it says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So, again, we can look at this of of the idea of of two ways, because the, the grand narrative of what Jesus is saying here is that the gospel is going to go forth. The gospel is going to go forth and proclaim freedom to those who are in bondage to sin. So now whether you see it as messengers speaking of those who would actually go out and preach the gospel, or whether you see it as angels, that's fine because angels would only refer to the spiritual power that would be behind the proclamation of gospel. So Jesus is talking about he's either going to send forth his physical messengers, that would be the apostles, the disciples, and those who would come to continue to preach the gospel, or he's going to send forth angels with the power to enable those who are going forth to preach the gospel. Now Jesus says as they go forth with this message of deliverance, with this message of the gospel, notice it says that they will gather together his elect from the four winds. We can see this same type of language again used in the Old Testament. Jesus, uh, excuse me, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Zechariah chapter 2, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens. So these Old Testament passages refer to the regathering of the exiles of Israel. Uh, but the word here that Jesus uses is not the exiles of Israel, but he says his, his elect. He's not talking here about the nation of Israel. He's talking here about the chosen people of God, those whom he has called, those whom he has predestined, those who he has elected, not just out of the nation of Israel, but from the four corners of the globe. Jesus is saying that as this power goes forth, through his messengers, as they proclaim this spiritual year of jubilee, that he will call together all of his elect from one end of the earth to the other. We see this related to us in Isaiah chapter 45. Jesus says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Psalm chapter 22, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship worship before you. So this trumpet is this symbolic of jubilee and this sim- symbolic of deliverance. Now, we see this again in Isaiah chapter 22. Because it says, It will come about in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and those who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And there was no audible trumpet that was heard in Egypt and Assyria all those days. But again, it was a figure of speech foretelling God's deliverance. So Jesus here is foretelling the deliverance of God's chosen people, His elect people. Those whom He has called, those whom He has gathered together, He's proclaiming their deliverance through this event, through the things that would happen after this, is the work that would continue to take place, not from a physical deliverance, but from a spiritual deliverance, that He was going to call His people unto Himself. So what we see here is Jesus proclaiming that the, the, that the culmination of these events in Jerusalem was the proclamation of the gospel. The culmination of what he was doing this work, the reason that he was seated in power at the right hand of God, was so that the disciples could go forth and do the work that he had called them to do. And that God has called each and every one of us to do. Verses 29 through 31 offer a clear picture of what was being demonstrated physically in the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. The removal of the Jews' special status, the seating of Christ in His kingdom, in power, and the power of the gospel, and the promised victory of the church. We see all of this here in these verses. 
that judgment's coming upon Jerusalem. Israel is being removed from their special status. Jesus is ruling in power, and the gospel will go forth in victory. Now, this should be encouraging for us. And so with that thought in mind, we, then we get to verse 32. And in verse 32, we see really the barometer. Now, we know that a barometer, if, you, if you're not familiar with a barometer, barometer is usually inside your house. If you have a, a thermometer and, and a barometer together, the thermometer tells you the temperature, and the barometer tells you the pressure, the atmospheric pressure. And if you know what you're doing when you read a barometer, you can begin to kind of tell what type of weather is coming. It foretells, in a sense, what kind of weather is coming. As the pressure rises or falls, you can see what's happening. So now Jesus gives them, the disciples, a barometer to understand what is getting ready to take place. And look there in verse 32. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now in Palestine, in the region where Jesus would have been teaching and ministering, most of the trees were evergreen. So during the wintertime, the bare branches of the fig tree were very obvious. As you looked out, it would be easily identifiable as a fig tree because almost every other tree would still have its greenery on it. But here would be this one with the bare branches. And now the leaves on the fig tree do not appear until late in the spring. So if you're looking at a fig tree and you begin to see the leaves beginning to bud forth, you would know summer is almost here. And Jesus is relating that just as the fig tree tells the soon arrival of summer, so would the fulfillment of these events uh, tell the soon coming destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. But not only that, but that summer is near. Now, I want to read an extended quote from Marcellus Kick on this passage because I think this is very encouraging, not only what it have been to the disciples, but also to us as well, because Jesus says, when you see all of this happen, that summer is near. And Kick says this, he says, The summer is a time of fertility, growth, and fruit, and was figurative of the kingdom of God. With the removal of the old forms of Judaism, the Messiah's kingdom was to find fertile soil not only in Palestine, but throughout the world. It was to grow into the uttermost parts of the earth. It was to bring forth abundant fruit to the glories of God. The destruction of Jerusalem and the events preceding it were not terrible signs, but harbingers of a summer that would spread its blessings throughout the earth. All the distressing events predicted by Christ, instead of discouraging the disciples, should encourage them. For by them, they would know it was the beginning, not of winter time for this world, but of summer. They indicated the beginning of a worldwide harvest of souls. So we see Jesus saying that when you see these things take place, the summer is near because he's going to establish this position as the church as this beacon of hope to a world that needs to hear the truth of the gospel. So this is the hope that we can find as well, that we understand that this is what God has called us to because the mandate for the church has not changed. The direction for the church has not changed. We are to go and to preach the gospel to every creature until Jesus Christ comes again. And this is the hope that he wanted to leave his disciples with. He said, don't, don't be worried about the things you see taking place. Don't be fearful. He said, be hopeful because this is what I've called you to do. And this is what we must commit ourselves to. As I've said over and over as we preach through this, this series... It doesn't matter whether you hold to a premillennial, an all-millennial, a post-millennial, or a pan-millennial perspective when it comes to your eschatology. What matters is we understand that the end result of all of these things is that we must faithfully continue to preach the gospel until the Lord's return. That's our goal, that we're going to preach the gospel to as many people in as many places, as many times as we can, until Jesus Christ returns to take us home to be with Him. Now, Notice the verse 34. Excuse me, verse 33. So he says, You too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. So Jesus is saying that the summer is, is near, that time is coming. Notice that word you there. He uses those words again. So we understand who Jesus is talking. He says, You too. You see all these things. What are all these things? He's going to use that word, that phrase again in verse 34. It's all the signs that he had been laying out, all the way since the very beginning of the chapter. The wars and the rumors of war, the tribulations, the persecution outside the church, the persecution inside the church, the, the destruction of the temple itself. He says, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. 
that Jesus' presence, his coming and destruction, his coming in Jerusalem is almost present. Now, I want you to notice in verse 34, the timing. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is perhaps one of the most debated verses in this passage. And it's debated because, again, depending upon how you interpret it, depends on how you interpret not only the rest of this chapter, but also how you interpret a lot of of other prophetic literature sometimes in the Scripture. So did Jesus mean when he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I believe that what Jesus is telling his disciples is that you will see all of these events take place in your lifetime. You will not pass away. And I believe that because, number one, it's the, it's the simplest interpretation of the text because he says, truly I say to you, this generation. Now, if Jesus had wanted to predict a future generation, he could have said, truly I say to them, or truly I say to you, that that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But it really comes down to the word that Jesus is using here. All throughout the book of Matthew, when Jesus uses the word generation, he uses a word that refers to the audience to whom which one is speaking. Now, there is another word for generation that means a race or a group of people, but it's not the word that Jesus uses here. And even those who hold to a futuristic perspective of this verse will say, yes, Jesus uses that word throughout the book of Matthew, and every time he uses that word, he means the group of people to whom he is speaking, except in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 24, uh, verse 34, when he still uses the same word, but we believe that he means something completely different. I just don't think that that's a fair interpretation of the text. So some would point that he means to the race of the Jews, but again, the word means to those to whom someone is speaking. Now, some would say that Jesus means that it's the generation that would not pass away um, when all these things begin to unfold. So they would say that Jesus means a a specific generation of people, but that that generation of people does not begin to exist until all the rest of these signs began to happen. Now, this is kind of how you begin to get people start predicting the end of the world. Uh, We know that in 1948, the nation of Israel became a nation again. And so because a generation is 40 years, you had a number of people like Hal Lindsey who said, okay, now we see the establishment of the nation of Israel as a sign of the end, and a generation is 40 years, so Jesus has to come back by 1988, because that's 1948 plus 40 years for a generation, Jesus will come back before the year 1988. And this was proclaimed really all throughout the 80s. Those of you in this room who are old enough to remember that there were just multitudes of books in the 1980s predicting the return of Jesus before before the end of that decade. In fact, there was one book written, 88 Reasons Christ Will Return, in 1988. 1988 came, 1988 went without the arrival of Jesus. So what do you do? You go back and you write a new book, 89 Reasons Christ Will Return, in 1989, which that man did. But that's how you get that, right? Because if you begin to say that it's a future generation, you have to begin to do a little bit of legwork in order to try to make these things make sense. But why would we struggle for or look for, or invent an understanding for a word which is plainly used here, which Jesus has already used before. And in the other instances, there's, there's no complication. There's no, no debate on what Jesus meant when he used that word generation. He meant those to whom he spoke. But it makes perfect sense that this is exactly what Jesus is saying to them here. This generation, you men who I'm standing here talking to in this moment, you will not pass away until all these things take place. And as we've looked over the past several weeks, we have seen that by Scripture, by history, and by record, that all of the things that Jesus predicted leading up to this point have taken place and did take place there before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus says all of these things will take place. As we close, I want you to notice the certainty. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is speaking of the truth and the validity of what he was saying, that they could trust in him. Isaiah chapter 40 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus is saying other things are contrary, other things are uncertain. He said, but you can trust in my word and know that this will happen. And it gives us great hope. James M. Boyce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor, uh, a Presbyterian pastor, and even though he, he held to a more futuristic interpretation of these verses, uh, as I was reading through his commentary, he drew uh, four particular lessons that I think are applicable from this chapter. 
And no matter whether you hold to a fulfillment in AD 70 or fulfillment in the future. And his four lessons were this, and then I want us to talk about each one of those. He says, number one, what we learn from this passage is that we are to watch out that no one deceives you. Number two, to be settled even in times of war or threats of war. Number three, to stand firm to the end. And number four, to preach the gospel throughout the world. And this is really it as we come almost to the end, because what we're going to see next week is there is a, a transition that's almost relatively agreed about, upon by, by all commentators and by, upon all Bible scholars, that in verse 36, Jesus does make a transition of time. That he's been talking about all the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and then in verse 36, there's a transition to begin to talk about the coming of the end of the age, when, when he comes in his glory, in his second coming, uh, to take home his bride, the church. But up until this point, If we had to look back at these 35 verses and say, what are we to understand? I believe that these four points sum them up the most. To watch out that no one deceives you. Jesus, over and over through this passage, were warned of false teachers. And we've talked as we studied each one of those particular passages that this was not something that was just limited to the early church. But this is something that happens in every generation of the church, that there are false teachers who arise with the attempt to either deceive people into a false gospel or to deceive those who are inside the church to believing something that's incorrect and to lead them away from the truth and the knowledge of who Christ is. And we have to be careful of that because, brothers and sisters, may we never think that we are above being deceived by a false teacher. Because Jesus says to his disciples over and over again, guys, you got to be careful. They're going to be cunning. They're going to be smart. They're going to be deceptive. You've got to be careful about what you listen to and about what you believe. What does that tell us? It tells us that as people, as Christians, we need to be people who are studying our Bible. As, as, As Christians, you know, Baptists, we always say Baptists are people of the book. But far too often what it means by Baptist is that we are people who say that we are people of the book. That we, we talk about it a lot. We talk about how important it is. But are we really spending the time studying it and knowing it and learning? Because brothers and sisters, that's the only way that you'll be able to stand against false teaching is that you know what the truth of the Scripture is. You know, it's said that when somebody, um, when, when somebody works at a bank, that bankers and people who deal with money, they don't study counterfeit money so that they can identify it. They study real money so that when counterfeit money comes along, it's obvious the difference because they know what something is. They know the real thing so well that the fake thing is obviously different. And it's the same thing for us. We study the Bible, we plant ourselves in the Word of God, and we stay there so that when those things come along, we easily recognize them. Number two, to be settled even in times of war or threats of war. I think one of the things that's always bothered me oftentimes about the way that believers view the world is we tend tend to become like ostriches, right? When things begin to go bad, we stick our head in the sand and we just hope and pray that things will just get better. But brothers and sisters, we we find here from, from Jesus' words, he says, don't be frightened of the things that are happening in this world. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then why would we be fearful of anything that happens in this world? Now, I'm not saying that humanly that we don't worry about when we see wars and battles and things break out, that we don't fear when we see churches being persecuted, we see the things right even that are right now happening in Canada. I'm not saying that there's not concern in our hearts. But what I'm saying that is, is that we don't have to be inwardly compelled and trapped by fear. Because we believe in the sovereignty of God, we understand that everything happens by the permission of God in this world. Not one thing happens outside of His purview and outside of His will. So we can trust in Him and know that even in the darkest of circumstances and in the darkest of seasons as a people of God or as a nation, that God is fully and totally in control. And we can trust in Him. We can rely upon Him. That we don't have to be fear. We can be settled and confident even in times of difficulty. And then to stand firm to the end. This is what it's all about. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I believe. That what makes us a Christian is not because we prayed a prayer. What makes us a Christian is because we have put our faith and trust in Christ. And the way that we know that we're a Christian is that we're trusting in Christ right now. 
And the way that we're going to know at the end of our lives that we were Christian is that when we come to the end of our life, however long that may be, that we're still professing faith and trust in Christ. We're still relying upon Him. We have to stand firm to the end. I can't count, sadly to say, I can't count the number of people who I have seen over the last 10 to 15 years who have professed faith and then walked away. They made a verbal proclamation, but they never made an inward change. They responded to an emotion, but they never had a spiritual conversion. And Jesus says that we must stand firm to the end. We must know who God is. We must know who Christ is. We must trust in the gospel. And if we do so, we can stand firm to the end. We can endure as Jesus commanded the disciples to do. And then finally, to preach the gospel throughout the world. If you get nothing else out of this entire series through Matthew 24, get this one thing in your mind. What ultimately matters is that we're faithfully preaching and proclaiming the gospel. This is our goal. This is our hope. This is our mandate, that we're faithfully preaching and proclaiming the gospel. That means wherever we go. It doesn't just, it's not just here alluded to the pastors or the elders or the people who have given their lives to be missionaries. This is alluded to every single one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ that we're commanded to proclaim the truth of the gospel. So that happens in your home as you educate your children and you train them up in the ways of the Lord. That happens in your neighborhood as you build friends and relationships with those neighbors so that you can share the gospel with them. It happens at your school. It happens at your place of employment. It happens in the most random places when you go to Walmart or the grocery store or the flea market or the gas station. We always should be looking for opportunities to proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world because this is what God has commanded and called us to do. The proclamation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that as we see the promise here that Jesus is saying, I have established my rule and my reign. He has come in His kingdom. And He has sent forth His messengers to all the world to proclaim the hope and the glory of the gospel. May God grant us the faithfulness to be obedient to the call that He's given. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank You for this time in Your Word. And Father, although there have been debates for some 2,000 years about the timing and the specifics of your return, Lord, we know that the thing that ultimately matters is that you are coming again. That you are going to come physically. You're going to return to this earth and take home your bride. And Lord, we rejoice in that knowledge. And Lord, we long for that day. We long to see your arrival here on this earth to take us home, to take us away from the curse of sin, to take us away from the wickedness and the evil in this world. But Father, we also long to be obedient to you. And we know that as long as we, as as much as we hope for your return, Father, that we should also hope and desire to be obedient to what you have called us to do. So Father, may we live as people who long for your arrival, but who are committed to giving our lives for the truth and the proclamation and the sharing of the gospel. Lord, this morning as we prepare our hearts for this time to come to the table together, Lord, may we, even in this moment, Lord, commit ourselves afresh to you for your work. Lord, I know that there are times in our lives where we can get easily distracted, where we can get easily pulled away. And Father, before we realize that we have prioritized other things over you, that we have allowed ourselves to become comfortable in our Christian walk. But this morning, Lord, we want to commit ourselves afresh to you to say, Father, whatever you desire for us, we want to commit to you. Lord, wherever you want us to go, whatever you want us to do, however you want to use us, Lord, we say this morning that our lives are not our own. They are yours. And that, God, you would use them as you see fit. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name.